O Darth, thy name, and for that name which is no part of thee, take all myself. I take thee at thy word. Call me but love, and I'll be new baptized. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture in order from the very first award ceremony to eventually the present year. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we, we've crossed over the halfway point at 1936, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. It, it, we're, we're almost done. We've got two more after this. With Romeo and Juliet, starring Norma Shearer as Juliet, Leslie Howard as Romeo, and... A whole bunch of other people equally miscast. Oh, God. So, you don't love this play, generally. This is this is not like Midsummer Night's Dream for you. No. No, I've seen it almost as much, but no. I feel like everyone has seen it almost as many times as you've seen Midsummer. Like, if you ever have gone to the theater, it is likely for a production of this. I feel like I'm, I'm, I was actually thinking before we started recording, like, do we even do a plot summary? <laughs> I, I am going to say we skip it. People know Romeo and Juliet, right? If you don't know Romeo and Juliet, like, two, the- t- two houses don't like each other. They're like kids fall in love. They think they're going to make it work, but then some people die and one of the guy gets exiled. Then a bunch of misunderstandings result in them both killing themselves. And then everybody's like, boy, this was a senseless tragedy. Let's stop hating each other for literally no reason. End. (laughs) Well, I mean, there is a reason, which is that their kids killed themselves unnecessarily. I meant more that they have no reason to hate each other in the first place. Oh, oh, yes. There's never an established reason why the Capulets and Montagues are rivals. Yeah, so there's a lot of times where people talk about Shakespeare plays. Romeo and Juliet is probably the big one. Hamlet is another. Where the complaint is that typically the actors who are playing the roles are too old to represent the characters in the story. So, you know, Romeo and Juliet are supposed to be like 15 and 17, rather 17 and 15. Romeo is a little bit older. Juliet is supposed to be 15, which, you know, presents something of a problem if you don't have any 15-year-olds and 17-year-olds who can do the work. Fine. But you don't need to cast 40-year-olds. <laughs> To make up for it. Yeah. Everyone in this that is supposed to be a teenager is not just a full-grown adult, but, like, sad divorced man full-grown adult. Like, (laughs) has been through some adult shit. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that is a really good way to put it. Norma Shearer was actually 34, and Leslie Howard was... 41. That's absurd. That's... uh, Yeah. It's kind of uh, ridiculous. And it reads that way. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, Norma Shearer does her best at doing something to represent being young, which essentially boils down to, for the first half of the movie, being so befuddled by the existence of everything as to seem like she's gotten way too high. Like, she's constantly looking around wide-eyed like, Oh, we're at a party. Oh, there's a boy. 
oh, there's a tree. Like Though that's somehow less infuriating than Leslie Howard's Romeo, who as a full grown man is just your friend who like will not shut up about a girl he just met, which is canonically what Romeo is, but is a very different thing when Romeo is 17 years old than when he's 41. And Leslie Howard also plays Romeo in a way where there's no dynamics at all to his character. It's like, yeah, I'm really in love with Rosaline. Oh, never mind. Now I'm really in love with Juliet. Oh, Juliet's dead? Okay, apothecary. Will you give me some drugs? cool does he even cry or like he never even raises his voice at any point (laughs) no i mean just the whole movie is so boring it's really bloodless this is why i kind of hate romeo and juliet like when it's good and we both like the baz lerman romeo and juliet which is really good when it's good the play fucking moves because there's some change in the characters of romeo and juliet But most people play it the way this movie plays it, which is that they're like these grand, romantic, tragic figures from word one when they're actually dipshit teens. Yeah, they're just horny teenagers. Yeah. Making bad decisions and running around with like a bad crew. Romeo runs around with guys who are like getting into full on street brawls. And these guys like... When they do actually have the street brawls, they're so unconvincing because it's like, what what even triggered this? None of you even seem angry. This movie also is my argument against being in love with the language of Shakespeare. Don't get me wrong, the dude could fucking write. There's some real poetry in the lines here. But this movie so overburdens itself with... Did you know this is how Shakespeare sounds? That, like, nothing ever sounds any fucking different. (laughs) You never get a sense of what anything means or why anybody does anything, because everything has to be the most important line ever because it's Shakespeare. And, like, that means nothing's fucking important because it's all the same. Yeah, and Leslie Howard is certainly the most guilty of this, and it's really frustrating because Leslie Howard definitely... Like, he's getting the iambic pentameter correct, (laughs) but he's so unconnected to the meaning of the words. Like, when he's supposed to be funny, or, like, just hanging out, or, like, says something that that Mercutio is going to poke fun at, it's always so airy and light and angelic and, like, uh, okay, we get it. Shakespeare wrote pretty words, but you're a horny dirtbag teen. (laughs) I will give it to John Barrymore because Mercutio is literally the only character in this whole movie that's making big swings. But boy, was it a bad big swing. It was a real swing and a miss. It was Uh, a real (laughs) swing and a miss. Yeah, Mercutio is played in here. Like, John Barrymore is getting paid a day rate. And if he can just get through the speeches really fast, he's going to get paid the same amount, you know, than if it takes eight hours to shoot. His Queen Mab speech is so fast and has no variation, but at least it's fast. (laughs) It's at least it's fast. (laughs) And the fact that it's fast means I finally kind of get the joke of the Queen Mab speech, which is usually kind of played like this, but way slower. He's just fucking loves to hear himself talk for like two straight pages. And Romeo is like, 
you are talking nonsense. And he's like, oh, what must it be like to listen to my friend talk nonsense? Anyway, go on about this girl you've known for three (laughs) days again, I guess. It is impossible to watch this movie in 2019 and not compare it to other film adaptations of Romeo and Juliet. And I actually have not seen the Zeffirelli one all the way through. I tried to watch it when I was like 15 after I saw the Baz Luhrmann one and it was... I mean, I I was 15 years old. I was a dirtbag teen. It just felt interminably slow. And I am looking forward to actually seeing it now, you know, well, now, several years from now for this project <laughs> and giving it another chance. But, you know, when you compare every one of the actors in this to all of the actors in Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, everybody falls short in really frustrating ways. And the direction falls short in really frustrating ways. I mean, we're no great fans of George Cukor on on this podcast. (laughs) And I wouldn't even say that this is one of the more frustrating of his movies that we've seen. It's just largely lifeless and boring. The development backstory of this movie makes so much sense to me, which is that there was a studio guy at MGM that's been wanting to make Romeo and Juliet for years, and Louis B. Mayer's like, no, this is, nobody likes this, this is old, boring theater stuff. And then Midsummer Night's Dream came out and was a hit, and he was immediately like, we gotta have our own Shakespeare! Bring that guy in that'll never shut up about Romeo and Juliet! Let's make this in four weeks! Because it has that feeling of, like, let's do this to do this. We're not doing this for a reason. Mm -hmm. Everybody's here because somebody in a producer's meeting went like, oh, you know who would be good for X? There's no animating force of an idea here. Right. Yeah, and it it totally feels that way. It definitely felt like we need to have a hit. So pull Norma Shear, pull Leslie Howard, pull a Barrymore. I don't care which one. (laughs) Oh, John's available. Cool. We'll have him. (laughs) Basil Rathbone as Tybalt is like so a thing that ought to work and doesn't at all. You know, and it's so frustrating because the moment that he appears on screen and he's got his sneer and he absolutely is embodying the character physically, I was like, oh, well, Basil Rathbone was born to play Tybalt. And more than anyone else, he is just incapable of speaking verse. No. And he's got the emotion. He's like the only character in this play or play in this movie that is connected to the interior life of his character. But he sounds nonsensical because he's speaking verses if it were just like regular contemporary text. It's like, what the hell did he just say? First of all, I, I blame Cooker above and beyond everybody else. But doing it in four weeks is you you can't even put up like a bare bones on stage version of Shakespeare in four weeks because you need that time to rehearse. <laughs> To be fair, the plan was it was going to go really fast, and then the shoot extended for six months. Apparently, this went incredibly over budget, and I cannot imagine how. Yeah, really, because one of the criticisms that I have in my notes is that the sets are so sparse. I mean, when they are in, like, the cemetery, when they're burying Juliet in a set that is obviously a real cemetery, it's a pretty impressive set. Not that the cinematographer cares, because any time that we have a wide shot of a set, it's for a very small number of seconds to establish where we are, and then it's all just super tight, up-close face shots that makes the 
overaged actors seem so much worse. <laughs> like you could you could put some Vaseline on the lens and like back up a bit, dude. <laughs> the party scene is so boring. Everything is so boring in this movie. The only scene that's even vaguely interesting is the balcony scene. And it's still not great. It's still the joke one they did for the Hollywood Review of 1929 is actually still kind of better. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But it's at least fucking something, you know? Yeah. It's at least somebody cared. Somebody had an idea. There's so many scenes in this where they don't even get to the easiest high school Romeo and Juliet production read of what's going on in a scene. Yeah. The morning after scene where they're both sort of arguing about whether it's morning, they don't play anybody is changing their mind ever. No. The, the whole point of that scene is this sort of back and forth tug of war of like, oh, I want to stay, I want to go. It's just like, no, it was the lark. The lark is a fun word. The dictionary defines lark as, <laughs> and like, fucking nothing has any meaning. I think that's a really good point that nobody is playing the scene. No one is present in this film. And that is really the major issue is that everybody is playing the end of this movie in every single moment so that there's no stakes. From the very first scene, you're like, well, I guess I'm just waiting for them to die. Like, that's totally how it feels. And it feels like the characters are just waiting for themselves to die and know that that's coming. And like, what kind of tragedy is that? If it's that far viewed, then who cares? There is a moment because I've had to go see a lot of not great productions of Romeo and Juliet that do the same thing. That happens around Act 3, where Romeo pulls out a blade and and it's the first time one of them threatens suicide. And you can always tell when you're watching a bad Romeo and Juliet, when, when that happens and Friar Lawrence stops him, you're like, just let him. It's faster. <laughs> like, when, when there's no sense of, like, they're gonna f have a way out of this, there's something at the end of this besides both of them dead that early it's just you're it's fucking interminable the play takes forever to get to them dying and it's not even that long of a play i mean they cut a significant amount of stuff but honestly i couldn't tell you what it was because i was so disconnected from it emotionally that i was having to like force myself to pay attention which is why i have tons of notes and most of the notes are just this is so unsexy this is so boring. There's no life here. For instance, the murder of Mercutio, which in the Baz Luhrmann adaptation destroys me. And I actually watched it a couple years ago. So it's been, you know, it's not like the last time I saw it was when I was 15. And the thing still holds up perfectly. Losing Mercutio is, is a big deal for you as the audience. And it's a big deal for the characters. Like Romeo is is driven to fury out of grief and Benvolio is upset and everybody is angry. And in this, it's like he gets stabbed and then John Barrymore's play of it is like, oh, guess I'm, guess I'm gonna die. Cool. Anyway, I'm just gonna keep talking and everything's gonna be sort of in the same register, but I'm gonna keep talking very quickly. While Benvolio and Romeo have, you know, one of his arms over each shoulder and, and they're, like, lightly smiling. And Leslie Howard's response to any form of frustration or grief is to give this, like, bitter half-smile that's not even really bitter. 
It's like, well, this is my life. He's the this is fine dog as Romeo. It's such a weird scene because one, it means Mercutio is constantly saying a plague on both your houses, like second house on the left. (laughs) Take a right at the light. Yeah, just like keeps tossing it off like, oh, by the way, you and your issue for all time are cursed. Anyway, there's a chair over there. Put me down. And... (laughs) Then, as soon as he's dead, one, he's just kind of suddenly dead because he's been playing it as like, oh, it's just a flesh wound. Right. And then he just goes, and then immediately Romeo is like, dang it. This was such a good day. Frig, I got married. Now I got to go stab a guy. And it's like, why? Why do you have like. (laughs) You don't seem to care at all. Yeah. Because it's not a decision made in the heat of passion, you get to actually criticize him for the decision, which is objectively a really stupid decision. (laughs) Yeah, oh, absolutely. And it's objectively a really stupid decision that only becomes understandable and sympathetic in the context of a play where Romeo is a hot-headed fucking teenager and not a 41-year-old morose boring person (laughs) to not just focus entirely on leslie howard's terrible acting which to be fair is a lot of this and i want to say that a lot of the cuts to the text here are any scenes that don't involve romeo or juliet that if there's anything that happens like at the beginning or end of a scene that is without them that they've gotten rid of it except for this sort of made-up character that they like jam samson and a bunch of other people's roles into who's supposed to be funny who is just this total cliched like oh look he's a big simpleton and he can't read which had to have been a played out thing in 1936 because it was played out in shakespeare's time yeah it's such a weird choice it also turns all the scenes with the nurse into these weird vaudeville routines completely unnecessarily Which, like, there's funny stuff with the nurse already in the text. It's not that the problem is that making the nurse funny is bad. It's that just, like, all the things they do are now in these weird setup punchline formats that are strange. But, yes, let's talk about Norma Shear doing her best. Bless Norma Shear. Because once she gets past this, like, in a complete haze. And I I have in my notes, like, does anybody in this movie remember what it was like to be a teen? Because the answer, I think, is no. (laughs) But she does have some moments where she gets some kind of fire in her. And in those moments, her voice drops. It becomes so, like, femme fatale womanly. But at least there's some passion there. Uh, Like in the speech that she has when she's contemplating taking the poison. But there's moments where she does stuff, I mean, that is like laughably cliched. She literally does the thing where she puts the back of her hand on her forehead. And twice? And I was like, really? The other thing is apparently the producer that really wanted to do Romeo and Juliet was married to Norma Shearer. Apparently died on the night of the premiere. So that's... a bad year for Norma Shearer. Jesus. But his whole idea was that this was going to be a really Juliet-focused Romeo and Juliet. And, like, you can't, you kind of can't do that. It's kind of not there in the text. There's just, like, a whole act where she's just nothing. Right. And so the parts of this that come alive at all are the parts where Juliet is the animating force. But that's only maybe a third of the play? Maybe? It means her death scene is really good. 
but like not the not the full scene literally just the part where she wakes up and dies and that's kind of the whole movie and microcosm is just like boy we're really sacrificing a lot so that the norma shira parts can be pretty good there's definitely something in the text that you can pull out of it where after she has been married and all of this shit has gone wrong you know she has her breakdown where she says my kinsman tybalt has been slain and she's all upset and then she hears that romeo is banished and then it's like oh well that's tybalt romeo mother father juliet all slain and there is that moment where she becomes not just a little girl, but she becomes an adult and a wife who has made the decision that the family she has very quickly decided to create with this other person is more important than her blood kinsman. And the talking through that she gives to herself about taking the poison and not knowing if like, oh, what if it just kills me? And that the friar is trying to cover his tracks for marrying us and then decides to do it anyway and then wakes up in the crypt and says to the friar, like, go, get out of here. I'm going to take care of this, but I'm not leaving, that I'm going to deal with the consequences of my actions and kill myself. There is a journey from child to adult that happens there. The problem is that Norma Shear is already an adult. <laughs> And reads as nothing else from the beginning. She reads as a, like, kind of stoned and flaky adult and then into one who, like, takes possession, I guess, of her womanhood. But so? She's already 34. <laughs> I mean, I do really want to give her the credit of, like, at least she's trying to have her character have an arc true romeo has no arc no from the very first word to the very last he is utterly flat he's just a doomed romantic boy from the very first time he opens his fucking stupid mouth there's a sense in which that's true in the play itself there's also another sense in which like it's not an accident that fucking Shakespeare has him start the play in love with somebody else. Right. And s so many productions are just like, oh God, this other woman, we've really got to like downplay her and get her out of the way for the actual like big romance that means something. And it's like, no, no, no. No, it's that he's totally impulsive and falls in love at first sight with everybody. And it's just that this is the first time that it has been reciprocated. And look how far that goes yeah I, I mean and i think if you play romeo right it's not just that he also grows up over the course of the play and like starts making different decisions than he would have in act one but boy is there absolutely no sense of that here he is basically fucking low rent lord byron in scene one and then he's low rent lord byron drinking the poison <laughs> yeah yeah oh absolutely and his death scene, he has the most calm and easy death from poison I've ever seen. Thus, with a kiss, I die. Eyes closed. Uh, yeah. And scene. Ugh, yeah. So it's bad, is really what I'm saying. I will give Anna Mae Oliver credit that she is doing her damnedest as the nurse. Yeah. I mean, she's great. And if anybody was born to play this role who's actually fulfilling that birthright, <laughs> unlike Basil Rathbone, I think that she is. I think she's sadly in a production that is not worthy of her nurse. 
the guy who plays Lord Capulet is almost incomprehensible. He sounds like someone doing a Saturday Night Live version of Sean Connery. At one point, he literally says blessed instead of blessed. It is a thing I like about actually Romeo and Juliet, but it feels like they did it by accident here, where it really does feel like this Lord Capulet and this Lord Montague are so low energy that the whole rivalry would be done in about five minutes over a beer if they just actually sat down. Because both of them, as soon as the prince is like, you're both going to die if there are any more fights, are like, oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, but I feel like Lord Montague needs to have some level of violence. Maybe Lord Capulet, not that much, except for the part where he tells Juliet that he's going to throw her in the street and she can die there if she doesn't marry Paris. But Lord Montague has the part at the party where he stands up to Tybalt and is like, you are not going to start a fight at my party. And Tybalt is so violent, and we have known that since the very beginning of the play, that he needs somebody who's really going to be able to stand up to him. I mean, the whole the whole thing is just a mess. Nobody understands their character except for Edna Mae Oliver. And arguably Norma Shearer understands her character, but uh, with this completely muddled memory of what it is to be a teenager. <laughs> so it's not good is is really what it boils down to. Like, I don't think we I don't even think we need to spend any more time on it. No, I think this is like a short one. They just kind of tried to do a big fancy stage production of Romeo and Juliet to like get press. And it worked, but not as a movie. It worked as a way to get press. That is absolutely accurate. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be brutal, honestly, with this movie. I'm gonna give it a three. I think it's a cash grab that is poorly acted, badly directed, and has no excuse for being two of those things. Yeah, I have no argument against that. Like literally the most interesting thing I can say about that is that there is a African American woman in Juliet's processional line in Act Five. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, and there's an African American man who shows up when Paris shows up at the house for the wedding. Not that either of these people has a role or a speaking line. No, but that they literally exist at all in this universe is the most interesting thing about it. Yeah. Should you watch this? Fuck no. (laughs) Yeah, God, no. Go watch Romeo plus Juliet, which apparently we're not going to watch for this because it didn't get nominated, which is fucking absurd. It's bullshit, frankly. You know what's interesting is the Lerman Romeo and Juliet was nominated for... Best Picture and Best Actor and Actress for the BAFTAs and beat Titanic, which was the same year, Yeah, in all categories. And I'm like, God damn it. Why are the British better at this than we are? <laughs> <laughs> uh, why aren't we watching all the BAFTA nominees? <laughs> and like, I can get why the Oscars would choose as the actual Best Picture winner Titanic over that movie. Because the Oscars do kind of reward the sort of giant Hollywoodness of a movie like Titanic. But for it to not even be fucking nominated yeah. is wild to me. And I get it because it was very much like the critical response at the time, of course, was people who were baby boomers who remembered the Zeffirelli one. And that was the thing that they watched when they were teens. And they were like, oh, it's so fast and furious and like all jump cuts and they don't take it seriously. And it's like, 
actually, Lerman takes it super fucking seriously because the beginning is silly and fun and goofy as it is supposed to be. Yeah. And that makes when everything starts to go wrong and people start dying, which is not, you know, these these kids have guns and they're flashing their weapons around and they're showing off and posturing. But nobody really feels like anybody's ever going to die. And then when they do, it's just a, a out-of-control spiral that leads to a, a huge body count and a bunch of people unnecessarily dying. And he fixes the major problem of why the letter never gets to Romeo, which is that FedEx fucks up instead of like, well, there was a plague in one of the towns and like I couldn't go around that town to get to, to Mantua. <laughs> Yeah, such a boring scene. For this thing that literally is life and death. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I I think that it's great. So you should watch that one and not the 1936 <laughs> one. Yeah, because the 1936 one is... The opposite of great. Yeah, it's not the single worst thing we've ever seen. No, it's the opposite of great in that it is, it is just nothing it is so it is so mediocre it's dry it's dry toast as a movie it's yeah except it wouldn't comfort me if i had food poisoning (laughs) it's why people think theater is boring oh absolutely and why people think shakespeare is boring yeah that it's just people like standing around not acting on their lines just well time for me to stand still and say these very important words like oh shoot me (laughs) But next week, when we watch something that isn't this movie, (laughs) we instead watch Doddsworth, which... You know, I I don't know what this movie is about, but it absolutely sounds to me like Doddsworth is Ruggles' brother from Ruggles of Red Cap. (laughs) Like, they're they're both butlers for somebody. For for sure, right? But I, I guess we'll find out. Yeah. Until then... Um, oh, this was a movie. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess. Yeah, it was a movie, but there are better ones. There like are def- Baz Luhrmann's <laughs> Romeo plus Juliet. There are definitely better ones, and there are, like, I guess really my resistance to this was a movie is, like, this was a movie that wanted to be a play so bad. <laughs> Didn't do a good job. No, it wouldn't have been good on stage either. No, but the reason it's bad on film is it thinks it's good on stage. That is totally accurate. That is totally accurate. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Goodbye. Till it be morrow.